But hey, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Um, And as Chris said, we are in Luke 19, and we have been going through the Gospel of Luke, and today we are going to kind of step through a little bit uh, ahead of the game of where we've landed, several chapters into Luke 19, primarily because today is, as Chris mentioned, Palm Sunday, which is the traditional historical church uh, recognition of the last five days of Jesus' life as he enters into Jerusalem and then will be crucified, um, buried, and then raised to new life. And so we're going to look at that story this morning in the Gospel of Luke as Jesus enters in. So we are looking at Luke chapter 19, and we are going to be uh, considering verses 28 through 44 this morning. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, After Jesus had said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is God's good and mighty word. Pray with me. Father, we ask this morning, give us ears to hear, eyes to see who you are, and a heart of courage to believe it. By the power of your spirit, we ask this. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, O God, in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Let me ask you this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And how you answer that question means everything, not only for the life 
that you live in the hereafter, but the life that you live in the here and now. And the narrative that we just read in Luke is challenging us to answer that question of who is Jesus? Is Jesus the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Is that who he is to you or is he just merely a teacher? Is he the one that you can rejoice in or is he one that you just kind of don't recognize? And this is a question that Jesus has been challenging his disciples with all throughout Luke. In fact, in Luke 9, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And all throughout this narrative, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that who he is is radically different than who they expect him to be. That Jesus says, who I am is the suffering king. I will suffer, I will be rejected, I will be betrayed, and then I will die. But on the third day, I will rise to new life. And Jesus has also been teaching his disciples that who he is, is the king who demands that those who follow him would give total commitment, absolute obedience, complete allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. And who Jesus is and the kingdom that he is calling them into to the disciples and to those who are following Jesus seem like a paradox. Because in Jesus' kingdom, it demands suffering love. And it demands sacrificial giving, radical obedience, and a patient endurance to wait for the God's kingdom to come in its fullness. And in the minds of the disciples, this makes absolutely no sense. Like the king that God has been promising, this is a king that will come in and will overthrow all of the enemies with power and with military might. How can you say, Jesus, that you will suffer and die? That makes no sense. Yet the way of Jesus demands, not the way the disciples view the kingdom to come, but the way that God has designed the kingdom to come. The way is a way of suffering, of humility, of obedience, of trust, of love. And as Jesus is teaching his disciples this way to live, it's all been literally on the way to Jerusalem. Because if we look back at Luke chapter 9, what Luke has been doing is telling us that the theme of this entire narrative from Luke 9 to where we find ourselves today has been that Jesus has set his mind, his face, literally, to Jerusalem. Because he knows that that was the goal. That it would be in Jerusalem that he would give his life for his people. That he would fulfill and accomplish the mission that God had given him. And so for the disciples to learn what this means, what it really means to follow Jesus and to know who Jesus truly is, it's gonna be the way of suffering. It's the way that we are also called into this. This is what Palm Sunday really is leading up to. And so as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as we read in the text, 
as he's been setting his face to do, the entry actually of Jesus into Jerusalem is in and of itself a paradox. This is the entry of a suffering king that Jesus has been telling his followers all along that's who he is. But in the mind of the disciples who see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, this makes no sense. Because they know that when somebody enters in in a royal procession, as history has shown them, this was to take control of the city. And the Jews knew that historically, whenever a king or a conqueror would come into the city, they would come riding in a chariot or riding on a white horse, which was the uh, symbol of victory. And the king would have all of his army surrounding him. And behind the king, he'd enter into the city with all of the captives that he had actually taken as slaves from the spoils of war. And that king would enter into a city and he would be wearing a crown of laurel. It signified that he was the victor. And as the king came into the city, the people of the city would shout out and they'd praise the victor. They praised the conqueror for all that he had done, that he had saved the city from the enemies. And they would sing psalms. And then what would happen is that king, as he's entering into the city, would go directly to the temple of the city. And most often, because these were foreign kings, they would go into the temple, they would violate the temple, and they would worship the Greek pagan gods. Now, in the mind of the Jews who were seeing Jesus enter into Jerusalem, they probably recall those things. In fact, three centuries earlier, in Jerusalem, Alexander the Great came in to conquer the city of Jerusalem, going directly to the temple and defiling it with his own pagan gods. But probably more recent in the memory of the Jews at this time would have been in 164 B.C., when an actual Jew, a priest by the name of Judah Maccabee, that name meant the hammer, pretty good WWE name. Judah Maccabee, along with a lot of his followers, overthrew the Seleucid armies, these Greek armies that had come into Jerusalem, captured Jerusalem, taken the Christian temple, and defiled it with their own gods. And Judah Maccabee brought Israel followers with him, overthrows the army so that Jerusalem now will be back under Israel's control. And on that day, December 25th, 164 BC, Judah Maccabee enters into Jerusalem and people are shouting and people are singing songs and Judah goes to the temple, his first thing. And what he does is he takes all of the idols, everything that the Greek king Antiochus the fourth, I think that's who it is, had actually taken, and taken gods made of metal and gold and had put it in the Jewish temple. And Judah Maccabee goes in there and he demolishes it all. And in the eyes of Israel, they're thinking, this Judah, Maccabee, is the promised Davidic king. This is the king that God had been telling us for centuries who would come and break the oppression over Israel. This is the king that would destroy the enemies and would bring the rightful rule of God back into Israel. 
But not long after that, Judah is killed in battle. And Jerusalem loses Israel's rule and again is under the rule of pagan kings. And this continues on and on until we find ourselves where Jesus is now that Israel is under the Rome, under Rome's rule, the oppression of Rome. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, very similar characteristics that the Jews would probably assume parallel Judah Maccabee, but yet radically different. Because Jesus doesn't come riding in a chariot or riding on a white horse of victory, but he comes riding a humble beast of burden, a colt. Some translations, literally a donkey. And what's also a paradox about the way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem is the fact that he is riding a donkey. Victorious kings don't do that. But what Jesus is doing is he's claiming the messianic, Davidic, rightful rule that God had been promising. Because what Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling the prophetic scriptures. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah, an Old Testament, Old Testament prophet, was giving a prophecy to Israel who were still under the oppression of pagan leaders. And Zechariah is telling Israel, there's coming a day where God is going to bless Jerusalem and he's going to send the king that he's been promising for centuries. And this king will destroy Israel's enemies. And he says, this is what the king is going to do. And Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the Jews seeing Jesus do this, would have known this is exactly what Zechariah had said would happen. Not only that, but further, a couple chapters in Zechariah, Zechariah says that the king who would come would actually stand on the Mount of Olives. And what does Jesus do as he comes to Jerusalem? He comes up to the Mount of Olives, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And if you could stand up there, and maybe you saw that, Cindy, when you were there. You were just in Israel. And you could stand up on the Mount of Olives, and you could overlook the entire city of Jerusalem. This was prophetic. Jesus was coming as the promised king. And the people who welcomed Jesus in would understand what Jesus was doing. They knew the prophecies. They knew that he was claiming to be the king, except the king that they hoped that he would be was not the king that Jesus had been teaching that he was. Yet still in all, the people of Israel worship Jesus for all he is showing as he comes in. Look what they do. They take their cloaks and they put it on this donkey who had never been ridden. And that's a different sermon, just as an aside. A donkey that's never been ridden or a colt that's never been ridden before, you probably don't want to ride that. A little crazy, right? 
unbroken, yet Jesus sits on it, and it's calm. You can work out the implications of what even that means. And they put the cloaks, the people put the cloaks onto the colts, and then they spread their cloaks on the road as Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives. And he would cross the, what was called the Kidron Valley, which is exactly what King David did in the Old Testament. And as he's coming down on this colt, people are laying down their cloaks, and this was a sign of a royal announcement. It would be like us throwing the red carpet down for somebody of celebrity status. It was a high honor position. If you were to take your own clothes and put it down for somebody to trample on, it's because you valued them. And as he comes, not only are they laying down their cloaks, but Luke doesn't tell us, but in the other Gospels that all talk about this story, John specifically and Matthew say that people took palm branches and they began to not only put their cloaks down, but they put the palm branches down on the ground and probably they started waving them as a sign of royalty coming in. It was also a sign of what was known in the scriptures, in the Psalms, as the, the trees would, would clap their hands and all creation would worship Jesus. And the symbolism of the branch of the palms waving would be all creation praising the king. It was also a time what was known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths that Israel celebrated for centuries. And this was a week-long period where Israel would remind themselves that when God had rescued them out of Egypt and they had wandered in the desert for 40 years, they lived in booths covered with roofs of palm branches. There's a huge significance going on here. And the people, as they lay their cloaks, waving the palm branches, cry out, and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote directly from Psalm 118 in our call of worship. And for Luke, the significance of this passage here was that this was a hymn of victory. Israel would sing Psalm 118 as they would come to Jerusalem. They sang Psalm 118 when they were building their booths. They sang Psalm 118 for the king who would come and conquer all the enemies. And then they go further and they shout peace in heaven and glory in the highest just like the angels did when Jesus was born. People knew what Jesus was doing. Yet, what they hoped for was radically different than what God had planned. Because they were worshiping, and the, the people who were welcoming Jesus in were expecting Jesus to be the king that would overthrow Rome 
that finally this is the king that God has promised all through the Old Testament prophets, the one who would stand on the Mount of Olives, the one who would ride the donkey and would now come into the city and overthrow our enemies. They had hoped that Judah Maccabee would have done that. In fact, they believed when Judah Maccabee had come that he was another David. They actually gave Judah the title, the savior of Israel. But Judah could not usher in the kingdom. And Jesus is now coming in. And even though these people don't understand, they're worshiping him. But the God that they want is not the God who Jesus claimed to be. Who was Jesus to them? The God of their own making? Laying down cloaks? Waving palm branches? Because we think you should be the God who destroys our enemies. Jesus, you are the God we expect to rescue us. We expect you, God, to do what we want to do. And therefore, we'll praise you. Who is Jesus to us? What kind of God do we want to worship? Will we lay our cloaks down on the road, wave the branches, and praise him if if you bring me healing. I'll praise you, God, and I'll shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, if you get me out of this financial situation. Or if you restore that relationship. Or you get me out of this situation that I have no understanding why I'm even here. It makes no sense to me. I've been asking that question a lot over the last several months. God, why? Makes no sense. That is not the way you are to work, Jesus. That's not the king you are. You want me to lay down my cloaks and follow you in a kingdom I can't understand in your ways that make no sense to me? That doesn't make any sense. the way of following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem means that we trust him no matter what. Even when the way makes absolutely no sense to us. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't stop his donkey and go, whoa, or whatever you say to a donkey, and go, you guys got it wrong. You got it wrong. He's been telling his disciples that, but no, 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 no. What he does is he welcomes their praise. Even when they don't know who he really is. And he welcomes their praise. And the same ones who are praising him now, saying blessed is he who come, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, would be the same people who a week later would shout crucify him. And Jesus would be going to the cross not with a crown of laurel, but with a crown of thorns. 
And they wouldn't be the only ones shouting crucify. It would also be the Pharisees. Oh, they're there. It seems that they're everywhere, Jesus is. And as Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, the Pharisees, being the teachers of Israel, being the ones who upheld the religion of Israel, knew exactly what Jesus was claiming for himself. They knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah. But to them, who was Jesus? Just merely, merely a teacher. In fact, they were so concerned about what Jesus was doing. What is their response? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Another way to say it is tell them to shut up. It's that direct in the Greek. They don't know what they're doing. And see, for the Pharisees, as we know before, the Pharisees did not align themselves with Rome. They weren't like the zealots. They did not align themselves with Rome, yet they loved the freedom that Rome gave them to worship the way they wanted to. There was something in Rome at that time called the Pax Romana, or Rome's Peace. And the Pharisees were more concerned with what Rome would think and what they would do rather than what God was doing. That they would not proclaim publicly that Jesus was the king. Who is Jesus to us? Do we refuse to proclaim his rule over our lives publicly? Are we more concerned and afraid of what others might think what others might do rather than what God is saying and doing in our lives. I know when I look at my own life, there's many times where I say, God, I'm just too ashamed to look differently than the world. I don't have the courage enough to stand up to those above me in work who are doing things they really shouldn't do. to witness to my neighbors, to tell them the good news. It's like I'm telling myself, rebuking myself, shut your mouth. May it not be so. May it not be so. Who is Jesus to you? Is he worthy of not only private praise, but public praise? And Jesus refuses the Pharisees' requests. And he says, I tell you, if these people don't praise me, the rocks are. All creation will praise this king. And if it's not the people whom he's made in his image, then it'll be the rocks that will cry out. It'll be the, the trees of the fields that will clap their hands. It'll be the waves of the ocean that will roar in praise. Exactly as the psalmists say so often. Jesus will be worshipped. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the one you rejoice in? The one you worship? Even when you don't understand what he's doing. And Luke, the only gospel writer who writes this, mentions as Jesus comes into Jerusalem... He looks at the city, again, coming down that hill, that Mount of Olives, 
and he weeps over the city. And it's not tears of a, a, a weak king, but it's tears of sorrow, brokenness mixed with love. That the people he had come to save were rejecting him. The city that God loved did not love him. They were tears of brokenness because he wanted the best for them and from them. So much so that he was coming to give his life for them. But they had rejected God and his ways. And as a nation, Israel decided it was better to have the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, than to have the peace of God. And Jesus weeps. And he pronounces on them a judgment that he had been preaching all along through Luke, that those who reject me reject God, and there will come judgment and as Jesus gives this prophecy, we know historically this, the fall of Jerusalem and the destroying of the Jerusalem temple actually happens in 70 AD by Titus of Rome. Exactly as Jesus says, no stone will remain on one another. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children. Death, tons of Israelites are killed following the peace of the world instead of the peace that comes from Jesus. And it's not only what happens here in AD 70, but it's true of what happens in all of life. That Jesus is very clear and he says, if you reject me, there will be judgment. But if you trust me, there is life. And there is life abundantly. See, the, the whole idea of Palm Sunday leading up to Good Friday and Easter is that for Jesus, he still weeps over brokenness, still reaches out to us and said, there's time. Embrace me, the Prince of Peace, the King who has come into the world. And even though you may not understand my ways, even though it makes no sense to the world, I am the true king. And everyone, as he says in John, everyone who hears my word and believes God who sent me will have everlasting life. That person will not come into judgment, but they have passed from death to life. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that Rome can't give. It's a peace that the world can't give you. It's a peace that your spouse won't be able to give, your friends, your job. Nothing in this world will be able to give you the peace that you need when you're told your life is ending. No peace will get you through that marriage difficulty outside of the peace of Jesus, the humble king 
who several days later is going to give his life on a cross so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, everlasting peace. Oh, that Israel would have got that. May we get that. The one who came riding on a donkey is someday going to be coming and riding on a white horse, as Revelation tells us. The one who is faithful and true, who will come in victory, and he will destroy all that is broken, all that is evil, fully and finally. He's going to heal that cancer completely. He's going to completely heal all these relationships. He's going to restore not all of humanity, but all of creation. And until that time, are we faithful to rejoice in him, even when we don't understand his ways? Who is Jesus to you? The suffering king who says, follow me. Yes, it's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be a lot of times you don't understand, but my way is the way of peace. My way is the way of hope, the way of life. And everyone, as we read in Romans 5, that comes to Jesus through faith, believing he is who he says he is, they're made right with God. And they now have peace through the cross. Do you need peace this morning? Do you need the assurance that the suffering king has suffered for you that you might live? This is true. Palm Sunday is about the king who died on his way so that we might live and have peace with God. Who is Jesus to you, family? Trust in him. Hold on to him. Take your palm branches and wave it crazy for the king of kings, even when you don't understand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are asking that you would be the king we so desperately need. Not the king that we think you should be, but the king that you really are. Jesus, we confess that so often we don't understand what you're doing and that can lead us to reject you, to not recognize you, may it not be so. Jesus, you are the king that came into the world because you love the world, that you might save the world and bring us peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others. As we reflect, Jesus, on this Palm Sunday May we be people not only throwing our cloaks down, but throwing our very lives down at your feet to follow you no matter where you go. That is the Jesus we know you to be and the Jesus we want to follow. Empower us with your spirit, Lord God, to live in victory. The victory that you, Jesus, accomplished at the cross and now we get a foretaste of. Be gracious to us, O oh God, we ask. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, amen.